Good morning. It's good to be with you. It is good to see all of you here with us. It is a blessing for us to gather together and to join our hearts and our minds and our voices to worship God. God, as we understand and as we all, I'm confident, believe, is the sovereign of the universe. He is omnipotent. He is the Almighty, and our Heavenly Father has granted His Son, Jesus Christ, authority over life, authority over death, as well as authority over judgment. It is for that reason that Jesus Christ Himself declared to possess supreme authority over all things. Now, this profession of power... This profession of ruling power was and is not tyrannical. God the Father gave this power to the Son. He handed it over to him so that he would be the one who had all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ was not and is not a usurper of authority. But with the fullness of deity dwelling in him, for because he is Jesus, God the Son, he is equally deity as his Father is. And with that being true, he is above all things. He's above everything. And so therefore, the supremacy and the preeminence of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, includes, it includes everything pertaining to to the church. Now, Jesus' authority expands beyond that, but everything pertaining to the church is under Jesus Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so his authority also rules and governs the sanctified congregate of those who are faithful followers, faithful adherents, faithful members of Jesus Christ. No man... No man, no matter how powerfully influential he may be in this world, no man possesses equal authority with Jesus Christ. And no man has authority to rewrite or to dismiss what Christ Jesus has already revealed. What he's revealed to us through the Holy Spirit and chosen men so that we have God's word even to this day, this very hour with us. And no man has liberty to change what Jesus has established and what Jesus has built. And it is that divine authority, therefore, that directs the church and therefore needs and must be the authority that directs us as people who claim to be true followers of Jesus Christ. The one who is Lord, the one who is Christ, is the head of the church. That is clearly brought out in Paul's letter to the church that congregated in the city of Ephesus, God's people in that city. So we're going to read here these few verses found in chapter 1 of Ephesians 1. And so beginning in verse 18... 
Paul, by the Spirit, is writing, and he says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. So God brought about this in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head, head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Divine authority directs the church. And therefore, we are reminded here that uh, who is the one directing us? Or who is the one who's supposed to be directing us? Well, it's Jesus Christ, the very one that is, is to be said to be the Lord and the Christ of God. He is the head. He is the authority. And so God the Father put all things under God the Son's feet and made him to be the one head of the church. With that said, and what that means by implication is this, that spirit-led apostles and spirit-led prophets found in the New Testament, chosen men who were servants of God, those men of old, the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, they were not and are not the head. And so the apostle Peter's not the head, the apostle Paul's not the head, any of those great men of faith, they are not the head of the church. That belongs to Jesus Christ. That also means God-ordained elders serving as shepherds and overseers in the respective congregation of God's people, they too are not the head. Even those ministries are God-ordained and are vital to the purpose and calling of God's people, elders, shepherds of churches of the Lord, they are not the head of the church. And likewise, self-appointed spiritual leaders or religious organizational decreed offices are not the head either of the church. And those kind of leadership roles, those are all man-made traditions that are not found in the inspired word of God. No, there is one head, and Jesus Christ is that head. So he is the divine authority that directs the, the church as taught in the New Testament. It is this true head of the church of God that is also described in Ephesians as well as the cornerstone of that church. 
So turning perhaps a page or scrolling down a bit there in your Bible, you look in chapter 2 and the last few verses of the second chapter. We pick up our reading now, and it says, that is, the Spirit says, on behalf of the Father and the Son, he says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the one, Lord, the one who is Lord in Christ is the one head of the church, and that one head of the church is the cornerstone of the church. In ancient times, the cornerstone was the primary foundation stone, obviously placed in the corner of that foundation, and it became the very standard that was used for the rest of the, const the construction. You always went back to the cornerstone to line up with that. And so all the measurements of, the, of whatever that construction was were determined and were adjusted to the perfect symmetry of the cornerstone. And God says, through the Holy Spirit, he says, my son has all authority. He is the head of the church and he is the cornerstone of the church. And so it is in Christ the church finds her rule. It is in Christ the church finds her practice from the one who is both said to be the cornerstone and the head. And the head. What that means practically is all matters of faith, you know, all practices done by the church must be set by the standard of the head's directives and the cornerstone's alignment. It all has to go back to him. And so proper measurements for the church do not come from, proper measurements do not come from church creeds. Proper measurements for the church does not come from decrees made by religious hierarchy. Proper measurements for the church do not come from political judgments nor from societal trends. The authority is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord He's the Christ, he's the head, he's the cornerstone. And he directs, he determines all questions concerning matters of faith. He determines all questions of practice. And so there's no council of bishops. There are no denominational conventions. There's no elected committees who have rightful authority to govern or to change what the true head of the church has already revealed and commanded. We already have the directives. We already have the cornerstone, the perfect symmetry that we are called to follow and line up with. So what is this church that Jesus said he would build? We read already in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus was questioning his apostles about, well, you know, who are you saying I am? And you've got that well-known statement by Peter. 
He confesses very boldly that he believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it was upon that confession that Jesus then responds, says, I will build my church. I will, on that very rock that you have claimed to believe in, he says, I'm going to build my church. The mission of Jesus Christ in doing his Father's will included the construction of what Jesus calls my church. That's all part of the plan. Jesus came to give his life on the cross and be the perfect atonement and propitiation for the, the sins of the world. That was part of the plan, yes, very vital plan. And without that sacrifice, there is no other way of atonement for our sins. Only God's lamb is able to wash away and pay the price for the sins we've committed. But the sacrifice of Christ was not the only thing he came to do. Intricately, part of that plan was the fact he came to build something. He came to construct something, and he says, it's my church. And so before Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the church was to come. But after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, as the gospel spread, the church now is in existence. And so before Acts 2, it's not present. After Acts 2, it is. Jesus accomplished what he said he would do. And this Greek word that is translated church in most of our English translations, most of our English versions, simply means assembly or means congregation, or a called out group. And so what Jesus is saying, he said, what I'm going to do, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. But also what I'm going to do, he says, I'm going to build something. I'm going to construct something. He says, and it, what it is, it's my called out group. That's what I'm going to construct. I'm going to, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to build my congregation It's not man's. What Jesus built is his. It's not David Bunting's. It's not John Grimmett's or Phil Collins or Gerald Jenkins. And put any of our names in there, it's not our church. It's Jesus' church that we are blessed to be participants in by mercy and grace. It's his church. But what is this Lord's assembly? What is this Lord's congregation? Well, sticking and remaining here in Ephesians, one of the things that we're told it is, it is his body. The church that Jesus said he was going to build is also his body. It is a living thing. It is a living body. It is not dead. It is very much alive and active. It's not a physical body. It is a spiritual body, but it is a spiritual body that lives. And and this body that is the same as his church has one head, and that one head has one church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. It's one. 
because that one body is composed of the gathering or the assembling of believers who faithfully and obediently submit to the Lord's commandments. Those who submit to the authority of the king, those who submit to the authority of the savior of the world, those who submit faithfully and obediently, they are the ones who make up this body. It's alive. And will continue to exist as long as, as time continues because it's made of living souls. And will then one day be with the Lord forever in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, it talk, he says, You are Christ's body and individually members of it. People make up the church. It's alive. People in the Lord make up the church. It's alive and active. But not only is it said to be the body of Christ, this assembling, this gathering, this congregating of those who submit to the authority of the one that God says has all authority now, is also said to be a temple. It's the Lord's temple. And so you go look again over in Ephesians chapter 2, and you glance you know, you know, there in verse 21 when he says, in whom you, uh, you also are being built together. You know, we're being built together, yes, in the sense of this gathering, assembly, this church of God's people, but also but we're being built together in the sense that we are a dwelling of God, a temple, a sanctuary for God. Briefly, I want you to think about some of the imagery and some of the concepts that are introduced to us, you know, back in the Old Testament, when King Solomon built the physical temple in the city of Jerusalem and did so according to God's word and God's directions. If you recall, David, his father, wanted to build that, but God did not allow him to do so. And so David made a lot of preparations. But in second in first Kings, excuse me, first Kings chapter eight, you know, you know, David is deceased, Solomon's reigning as king, and it is at the dedication of that temple. Uh, and, and the temple is completed, and so they're about to start using it. And so Solomon in this speech, in this discourse he shares to the people who have gathered there in Jerusalem. You know, it says, for example, in verse 16, since the day that I brought my people, Israel's re re reflecting on the fact, what did God say previously? He says, well, he's re quoting some things God had said previously. Since the day that I brought my people, Israel, from Israel, I did not choose a city of all tr of the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Before this, God hadn't picked a place and he hadn't picked a house. You drop on down in that conversation and in that speech, you look there in verse 18, he then says, but the Lord said to my father today, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. And so that, that was, you know, he wasn't allowed to do it, but he's, he says that was a, a blessing for you to have that intent. But then in verse 20, he says, now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and now have built the house for the name 
of the Lord or the name of Jehovah, the God of Israel. The imagery that is brought out in this building of a construction emphasized the idea it is for God's name. It was not for Israel's name. It wasn't for David's name, and it wasn't even for Solomon. It was for God's name and everything that stands for. And so you think about that idea of a temple. And so it's not like, okay, we're building this, and we're going to put a sign out in front of this construction with God's name. Jehovah's name is going to be on this sign out front of this temple. That's not what it's talking about, is it? Neither is saying, oh, we're going to put this plaque over, over the door there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not what it's talking about. In building this construction, it is to be a, a manifestation of the fact that God is there. The name of God is present. And yet God did not live there literally. This house would not be able to contain God himself. And Solomon even recognized that later on in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. But this construction in the Old Testament, which was a house of God, a house for God, was a sacred construction built according to God's blueprints depicting holy fellowship. Because the temple relationship emphasizes that it's all to be about God. That's what the temple relationship emphasizes. It's all to be about God. It's all to be about God's glory. It's not about man. It's not about man's accomplishments. It's not about man's glory. No, it's all about God. It's God's name is to be there. And so everything that is done there is to reflect and manifest that holy relationship toward God. And so like the former temple, you know, even now the temple that we are in Christ, it's a spiritual temple in Christ. It's not a physical construction, but even still it is a relationship that is to emphasize the holiness of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 5, the apostle Peter, the very one you recall back in Matthew chapter 16, that made that great and noble confession, and he says, you know, okay, upon that, that confession, I'm gonna, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and you're going to have keys to open things, you know, to open things that have already been opened and to, to, to bind and unbind things that have already been done in heaven. He says, you know, there's gonna, you know you're going to be empowered with this. That same apostle now writes here in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 5, talking to Christians. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul writes back in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, he says, okay, the church over which Christ is the head is his body, a living thing, but also that church and body is the temple of God, a spiritual house. 
you know, that is built for a spiritual purpose and ultimately to be a relationship that manifests God's name and doing so offers acceptable sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable worship according to God's commandment. Why? Because it is a covenant union with God. That's why. It is a covenant union with your creator and your redeemer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we studied a bit about this this morning in the adult class. It talks about how we are the temple of God. And it goes on to say, just as written when God's promise, I will dwell among them and they will dwell in me and I will walk with them. It is a covenant union of God with his people. What is the church? It is a gathering assembly of all those believers who submit faithfully obedient to the authority of the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. But what does that gathering assembly of believers become? He says, well, they become Christ's body, a living thing that is designed to carry out the function for which it was brought into being to function and do. But also he says it is a temple, a dwelling for the presence of God, a covenant relationship with God. And so disciples of Jesus are living stones fitted together into this purified sanctuary in whom God lives and dwells, where his name is to be abiding. And thirdly and finally, described to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the same relationship of the church that is Christ's body It is God's temple. It is said to be as well God's family or God's household. Reading that verse very quickly, it says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Some version may say in the family of God. I'm writing so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household or family of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Interestingly, there's a right way to behave in the church, and there's a wrong way to behave in the church. There's a right way to behave in God's family, and there's a wrong way to behave in God's family. And Paul says, I'm writing, Timothy, you know, so that you, know, you will know and be able to teach others, you know, concerning the conduct that should be present among those who are part of God's family, that are this temple of God, that are this body of Christ. You know, this called out assembly of Christ over which he has all authority is a God-established relationship. It's God-established And it is God-maintained. It is divine in its origin, but also it is divine in its oversight. God adopted you and me. God adopted you and me. He made true followers of Christ his children. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, 
The Apostle, Paul, Apostle John emphasizes this point when he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. How great is the love of God for us, for you and me in Christ. Well, he says, he says how great you know, this love is that, has, that we have received, that we would be called the children of God, such, and such we are. That's all part of God's love that we are now in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, his children. And going back to Ephesians, that principle is clearly brought out as Paul, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes the great scheme of redemption through Jesus Christ and uses that very imagery of adoption. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, in Christ, he says, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind of tension of his will. That's why over in chapter 2, verse 19, he can say, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens, you're no longer spiritual orphans lost in the world. You're not that anymore. Because now you are in Christ, and in Christ, what are you? You are of God's household. You are of God's family. God has adopted you and made you his children. We don't need to diminish just the magnitude of the genuineness of that relationship. The kind of relationship that God intends for us to have with him. When he says, I'm your father, and you are now my son. I'm your father, and you are now my daughter. 2 Corinthians 6, 18 talks about that. When he says, I will be a father to them. I will be a father to them. And you will be sons and daughters to me. One manner that that is so well expressed is found in Romans 8:15, particularly in the idea of our prayers, our communication to the one we pray to. There's a reason you say, God, our Father. That's not just a saying that you just habitually say and don't think about. Every time you say that, you need to think about what that is saying and what that means to you, that God is your personally intimate father. He's yours, and he's ours of all of us who are his children. But in Romans chapter 8, 15, he says, you know, we have not, re we have not received a spirit of slavery he says, no, that's not what we have. You know, we've not received a spirit of slavery, but, but that leads to fear again. No, he says, no, you have received a spirit of adoption in Christ, through Christ. You have been adopted, freed from the enslavement and the entanglement of the world and sin and under the domain of Satan. You've been freed from that, and God has adopted you now. He says, and you received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Our, our, our English language just doesn't do justice really to what that is trying to say. And we need to be careful not to diminish the reverence that needs to go with that. But it's emphasizing the fact that this God who brought life and existence to the universe and loved you enough to send the Son 
to die on a cross for you, wanted you to come back home to him enough to adopt you the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this spiritual familial gathering in Christ is founded upon what? According to Timothy's letter, it's founded upon and centers in the truth, God's truth, the word of truth. Veer from the truth, and that relationship starts breaking. Veer from the truth, and the relationship starts weakening. For this relationship, this familial relationship that is God's family, God's household, God's temple, Christ's body, for that to remain strong and healthy, we must hold fast to the truth, the word of truth. For it is that truth that sets us free. It is that truth that transforms our lives into image bearers of Christ. That's the potential we're striving to be. And it's possible because of God's mercy and grace that is offered you this very day through Jesus Christ. We are told that there are certain terms of membership or terms of entrance into this relationship. For example, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, you're all sons of God or through faith, and all of you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ. There's something that must be done. There's something that you have to exercise within you for you to put on Christ. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it is that by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. What is that one body? That one body is the body of Christ, and that body of Christ is the church, God's family, God's temple. So to be a member of Christ, to be a member of God's family, to be a member of, uh, of Christ's body, by faith we must put on Christ through baptism, and it is through that manifestation of faith that we enter this relationship, a blessed relationship that's made possible by God's mercy and grace. And that's why in Acts 2, 2 when the apostles are preaching to, to the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the gospel of Christ, you know, after the great ascension of our Lord back to heaven, and when there were hearts that were pricked by the truth, and they ask, what, what do we need to do? They've been convicted that they had crucified the Messiah. They had crucified the very one that came to save them. They rejected the only means of salvation, made it possible. He said, what can we do now? He said, well, there is something you can do, and there's something you must do. He says, you must repent and be baptized. And you will receive the forgiveness of sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all those who did that, all those who received that word were baptized. And that, on that day, there, that number added up to 3,000. But that was just the beginning. In verse 47, it says, Daily, day by day, the Lord, had, the Lord added to those that were being saved to that number. Do you want to be part of the family of God? Do you want to be part of the body of the saved? You know, do you want to be part of the spiritual sanctuary of your creator? Then you need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And to do that, 
by faith, you need to submit to his commandments, to his teaching. Whatever your need may be today, we want to encourage you to make a commitment to Christ. If you've never been baptized and put on Christ in obedience to the gospel, we want to encourage you to do that even today. We're ready to assist you. If you have, but you have strayed from that path, you have turned back into the world, and you need to make things right with your Lord, with your King. We invite you as well. Whatever your spiritual need may be, please come forward, make your wishes known, or stand and sing the psalm that's been selected.